I've entitled my message today, Identity Crisis. Have you ever gone through an identity crisis? I learned this week that I am the prime age to experience something similar to identity crisis, midlife crisis. It's something about my hopes and dreams are starting to fade away. My body is not what it used to be. You know, the aches and the pains and all the dreams that I want to do, I can no longer, or I don't think I'm going to be able to do. I feel trapped inside of the kids and the the schedule and the job and whatever it is. I thought I was doing pretty well until I read this article and I thought, oh no, I didn't realize I'm in crisis. So if one of you has a convertible I could borrow, that would be great. Maybe a boat. I don't know. Identity crisis. On a more serious note, have you ever had an identity crisis? You know, there's a lot of people wondering and asking about the the various things in society. And is this normal or is this an identity crisis? I hesitate a little bit to put this picture on the screen because it's rather disturbing. This is pictures from the transgender community. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to throw them under the bus. God loves them. They're his kids. But I would suggest that they're having an identity crisis. God loves them, certainly, but I believe that's why more than half of transgender male teens reported attempting suicide, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, 50%. Does God know what he's talking about? Yet we have so many of our young people, so many of our teens being exposed to images and pictures and these ideas and theories that it's whoever you want to be and somehow it's not male genes or female genes, but it's all neutral and you decide and this confusion pervades and they have these identity crises and they think if I just get surgery or if I just do this, that or the other, then everything will be okay and the result is that it's not identity crisis. Many are suggesting that our country is facing an identity crisis as people are pleading and leaving messages and text messages and bombarding your mailbox and every means possible, billboard signs to help you decide to make the best decision in how many days now, 25 or something days, I don't know. Do you like the direction of our country? It's in your power to change the direction of our country. All of this noise, if you will, identity crisis. And I'm not saying there's not something to that. There certainly, I suppose, is. I would also suggest the Protestant church is having an identity crisis of sorts. As Rick Warren many years ago said, our our whole approach was wrong. It was flawed. And we're having to redesign and redevelop how we do church. Of course, you have all of these Protestant leaders high-fiving and gathering with the Pope and so on. That never would have happened before. The Protestant, the protesting church, is not protesting like it used to. And it's not because theology has necessarily changed. Certainly the Catholic church has not changed. And I would suggest to you that within the Protestant church, there is an identity crisis. I've shown you this before. As you Google two phrases, Christian worship or rock concert, you get these pictures. One is what popped up when I searched for Christian worship. The other one, rock concert. And you really can't tell the difference, can you? Again, I would suggest that our worship services are in an identity crisis. I'm thankful we don't have services like that here. Others are suggesting that Adventism is facing an identity crisis. And there's a lot of different angles you can look at this. I put this article up, Universal Sunday Laws and Adventist Doctrine 
intransigence, refusing to change one's views, and they're suggesting our doctrine is outdated, it needs to be changed, revamped, we need to take Avenist out of the name, and so on and so forth. Is that what needs to be done? Avenist identity in a changing world. Yes, we need to adapt to the world around us in part, maybe in how we connect with them, but who we are fundamentally shouldn't change. Yet some are calling for reform within the Avenist church. Some are saying we are simply one piece of the puzzle of the picture of who Jesus is, and you need all the pieces, all the religions, everything combined to get a full and complete picture of who Jesus is. One Avenist pastor blogged this. He said, Scripture is not truth. Jesus is truth. Think about that. Scripture is not truth. Jesus is truth, and Scripture merely speaks of him. There's a difference, and he shall be revealed in many odd and interesting places. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and Jesus says, I am the word, the word is me, and so on and so forth. Are there greater revelations in Scripture? Yes, Jesus for one, the Holy Spirit now for another. Scripture is our guide to the Spirit. Friends, this is mystical language from an Adventist pastor that says Scripture is not truth. That's not a biblical idea. God gave us Scripture, the bedrock of all truth. But here he's saying, no, there's greater revelations. Jesus for one and the Holy Spirit for another. I've had evangelistic series where they say, Pastor, I hear what you're saying about the Sabbath, but the Holy Spirit told me last night. I hear what you're saying about the state of the dead, but Jesus communicated with me that it's actually like this. I mean, where is the real source of identifying truth if you throw out Scripture? And notice the blog. It's entitled, Reinventing the Adventist Wheel. Does the Adventist church need reinventing? Does our theology need revamping? Everlasting gospel. I've shown you some of these from, and these are authors. This one's Leonard Sweet. I remember going to some meetings. The whole Southern Union was there. This is some time ago. Leonard Sweet was one of the keynote speakers. I was standing next to another individual about my age in ministry, and I said, who is this guy? And this has probably been 15 years ago, maybe. He says, you don't know? He said, this guy is amazing. I read all of his books. He's incredible. I can also tell you now that that individual's not in ministry anymore. This is one of his books, Quantum Spirituality. The Christian of tomorrow will be a mystic, one who has experienced something, or he will be nothing. Christianity, facing an identity crisis. We need something new. We need to reinvent it. We need to somehow infuse it with something, I don't know, new, fresh, impressive. Here's one of his suggestions. Here you go. Gather a group together. A Navajo breathing ceremony. I don't know what book of the Bible that's in. Stand in a circle, everyone facing the center of the circle. If there are any present in special need of prayer, ask them to center the circle. Is this a biblical idea? Does it sound unfamiliar to you? Good. Continuing, place your hands in the center of the backs of those standing on either side of you and observe silence. They like the word center. Continuing on. Get in touch with one another's breathing patterns. What are they breathing over there? How are they breathing over there? Okay, I need to get in tune. I need to quiet myself. I need to center. This is weird. Now breathe together as a circle, bending the knees slightly as you inhale. Straighten up as you exhale. Keep doing this until the circle becomes one breath. Is this what the Adventist church needs? Lamaze classes? Here's another one, and I could talk about these all day, but that's not my point. I'm going to get to something that actually means something. Finding God in the dark. I saw this years ago when I was, when Elizabeth and I were at an appointment with James. This was in the lobby. I said, that looks interesting. Barbara Brown is the author. It says, darkness is often treated as evil. 
a vast unknown and the ultimate spiritual enemy, but as one of the America's leading theologians, oh really, believes, it may save us all. What may save us all? The dark. And you read the whole thing through and you think, this is weird. I still have the magazine. I marked it all up. Should have brought it today. We spent some time in our youth class back when I first discovered this, looking at how many verses. We came up with 30-some verses in the time that we had. Here's just a few. I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The article talks about you need to have a night garden. You need to plant plants that glow in the dark and things and, and different things. And you walk through and, and center your, all this crazy stuff. And I've heard an Adventist pastor, not long after I saw this article, preaching and quoting from Barbara Brown. I said, I don't think so. We don't need to reinvent our message. God is light and in him is how much darkness? No darkness at all. And they do all kinds of mental gymnastics in this guy's sermon. He talked about, well, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane at night. John spoke to Nicodemus at night. Yes, half of every day is night, but that's a bit of a stretch. Identity crisis by Oxford Languages is defined this way. A period of uncertainty and confusion in which a person's sense of identity becomes insecure, typically due to a change in their expected aims or role in society. What brings about this identity crisis? Well, we're changing our aims, we're changing our role in society, we're changing where we feel like we need to go, what we need to look like, how we need to market ourselves. And if the Seventh-day Adventist Church has an identity crisis, I believe it's because we've forgotten our biblical prophetic message for this time. Adventism, I would suggest, is for Adventists. Methodism is for Methodists. Catholicism is for Catholics. I almost messed that one up. But the truth, the message is for everybody. But the truth, the message is for everybody. I believe we have a life and death message for the world. If you brought your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Revelation As we try to read about this message microscopically, we're going to really break it down. It's easy to read over quickly, but I want to take our time reading it over. And I'm talking about the three angels' message. Some like to say that Revelation is a closed book, but the very name means to reveal. And it's in Revelation he reveals to us our Adventist, prophetic, biblical identity. Some like to avoid Revelation because it's filled with beasts and doom and gloom. But that's to contradict the very first verse of the book that says this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the midst of doom and gloom, if you have Jesus, you're going to be okay. So it is in Revelation that is given to Jesus, given to an angel, given to a servant John. He's about 90-something years old when he writes this down. And now you and I have this precious message in our hands today that Jesus sent for us for this time. This is not a human message. This is not a human opinion. It comes to us directly, I believe, from the heart of God, directly from the throne room of the universe. If there is a message that comes from the throne of the universe, I want to pay attention. It must be critically important. If you haven't guessed already, I'm taking you to Revelation chapter 14, the three angels' messages. I believe the three angels' messages lift us from the narrowness of the claustrophobic confines of our self-inflated importance and focus us on the enduring purpose for living. They give us an ever-widening reason for our existence that doesn't fade with time, but actually, I believe, grows stronger with time. 
It doesn't become just an old relic. Are the three angels messages to some antiquated, antique, not relevant message? Or is it possible that with the ongoing of time, they become more relevant with every passing day? And how could that be possible? Because God was the one that gave the messages. And I believe they speak to some of the most burning issues of this generation. They're heaven-ordained. And so let's get started. I'm going to put the words on the screen, but I encourage you to read them in your own Bible. Why? Because we're not going to be going fast. You're familiar with much of this anyway, but I want you to mark it up in your own Bible. I encourage you to pull out a pen or a pencil to write in some key words. If you're too nervous about that, put it on a pad of paper and make sure it's something you want to put in your Bible when you get home. Whatever it is, but I encourage you to mark it up. And we read there in Revelation chapter 14, beginning verse 6. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel. Now let's pause right there before we go any further. Let's ask the very basic question, what is the gospel and why is it everlasting? I would submit to you that the gospel is the very foundation stone of the three angels' messages. If we study the three angels' messages and we miss the gospel, we've totally missed the foundation of the entire framework. The gospel is what allows us to stand solidly on everything else that will follow. The gospel is bedrock for us. It's the heart, the pulse, the lifeblood of the believer. And what is the gospel? It is the good news. First. Corinthians 15, verse 1, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand. Continuing, skipping to verse 3 and 4, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. That is the everlasting gospel, that Jesus died was buried and rose again, that he is not dead, but that he is alive. And because he has conquered death, we can too. Everlasting gospel. It's core. Galatians 2.20, I therefore have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus was crucified. He lived the perfect, sinless life that I have not lived. God wants to empower me to live for him, for his glory. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But even if I never sinned from one more time from here forward, I still would be condemned to death. And you would too. But Jesus, in his grace, in his mercy, in his power, he overcame the arrowy, fiery darts of the devil. And because he overcame, we can too. That's the everlasting gospel. Christ has redeemed us, it says in Galatians 3.13. He's redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Everything that you've thought, everything that you've done, every motive that has been impure, God paid for that. He paid in full for you and for me. That's the everlasting gospel, that we might be delivered from sin and its penalty and sin's power. And let me suggest this too. It was not some afterthought. 1 Peter 1, 18-20 says, You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. That's incredible news, that we were delivered from sin long before 
While you were still sinners, Christ died for us. But long before any of this even transpired, God had a plan to redeem humanity. Desire of Ages, page 22, says the plan for our redemption was not an afterthought, a plan formulated after the fall of Adam. It was a revelation of the mystery which has been kept in silence through times eternal. Romans 16, 25. Wrap your mind around that. God knew what was going to happen. He could have sequestered the whole thing and not created from the beginning. Why? Well, it's not going to pan out like we wanted it to. It's not going to be in our best interest. So we're just going to squash it before anyone knows. The angels don't know. Nobody knows. We're just going to squash it. But friends, that goes against the character of God. If you tell a lie and nobody knows, does that not make it a lie? If you deceive and mislead and nobody knows, does that not make it deception? No, Jesus is truth through and through. And so even though he knew, he foresaw and he says we can develop a plan and we can still redeem lost humanity. That's the everlasting gospel. Some question Ellen White, if the message of righteousness by faith detracted or somehow took away from the three angels' message, and she responded this way, Several have written to me inquiring if the message of justification by faith is the third angel's message. And I have answered, it is the third angel's message in verity. We don't use that word anymore. But it means a true principle or belief, especially one of fundamental importance. So we could say this is bedrock. This is cornerstone. This is at the heart of the three angels' message. The everlasting gospel. Circle it. Underline it. Star it. This is key. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth. Folks, this may seem overly simplistic, but don't miss the obvious. Righteousness by faith, God's unending love, his abounding grace. They are not a preamble to the three angels' messages. They are not part of some introduction. They are not some filler until we get to the meat of the message. No, they are the very heart and foundation, the cornerstone of the three angels' message. So the needs of the world today, number one, I put on my screen, the gospel. And you can add in there everlasting gospel. I'm trying to use one word, which is hard. But to me, the gospel is the everlasting gospel. There's no other gospel. Continuing on in our microscopic reading, and I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation, kindred, and tongue, and people saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him. Friends, this everlasting gospel in this next piece is to be proclaimed, to be preached, to be taken to the world. To every kindred, every tongue, every nation, every people. Friends, this is the vaccine, if you will, for racism, is it not? This goes to everybody. There's no bigotry. There's no hatred. This is not social reform. This is the everlasting gospel. And it's for everyone, everyone, everyone. And this idea that we need to preach unto them. This is the fulfillment of Revelation chapter 10, verse 11. Remember after the great disappointment of 1844? The angel said, take the little book and eat it, and it was to be sweet in their mouth, but it became bitter in their stomach, and they were overwhelmingly disappointed. And what did the angel say? You must prophesy again. And so here we have the fulfillment of that prophecy. It's an echo of Jesus' own words when he says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. I shared these last week. Winston Churchill says, not enough to have lived. We must be determined to live for something. 
question is, what are you living for? And I guess the next question is, is it worth living for? This Russian Christian philosopher said this about communism. The mystery of human existence exists in not just staying alive, but in finding something to live for. So need of the world today, the second one I put is purpose. This is our sense of purpose. This is our sense of mission. This is what we live for, for sharing the everlasting gospel, the best gift ever given to humanity, and now it's your job to share it. How fun of a job is that? To a morally twisted, sex-jaded, self-centered world that has lost all sense of purpose or meaning, the three angels' message gives us back our purpose. Continuing on to every nation, kindred tongue, and people saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him. What does it mean to fear God? Well, let me suggest this doesn't mean to be afraid of God, but rather communicates a sense of reverence and of awe and of respect. It conveys the idea of absolute loyalty to God and full surrender to His will. It's an attitude of mind that I take God seriously. It is Christ-centered instead of self-centered. You know, perhaps the most self-centered verse in all of Scripture is this one here in Isaiah that speaks of Lucifer. Isaiah 14, 12 to 14. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Self-centered. Lucifer had an eye problem. I was at Captain Gilmer this week giving Bible studies to seven of our young people that are preparing for baptism, which I'm just so excited about. And be praying for them. And we were talking about the great controversy. And uh, it was Rachel Bynes that spoke up. And she said, Pastor Wright, the problem with sin is that I is in the center. I thought that's absolutely right. Summarizes it very well. Friends, I believe more than ever we're living in a society where I is at the center. Social media is largely focused on me, myself, and I. What I did, what I ate, where I went, what good I, or how good I look, what I think. No, the need of the world today is for, number three, authority. And we could say higher authority or submission to authority. To fear God. Because we are living in a time when the only authority that I listen to is me. I'm in charge. I make the rules. Nobody tells me what to do. I'm not about to sit here and listen while you... In an age of humanism, materialism, consumerism, the first angel's message calls us to fear God, to make God the center of our lives, to turn from the tyranny of self-centeredness, the bondage of self-inflated importance, and in humility place God in the center of our lives, where I is no longer first in our thinking, But instead, reverential awe leads us to place God first in our thinking. This verse has always challenged me, Matthew 6, 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Good verse to write on top of your calendar, your to-do list, your agenda. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Colossians 3, 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Continuing with these three angels' messages, in case you're starting to panic, don't worry, we're going to spend 90% of our time in the first. Because the second and the third are simply a response to rejecting the first. That's why they're the second and the third. Which comes first? The first. You confused? Hope not. 
Fear God and give glory to Him. Friends, giving glory to God speaks of our lifestyle, doesn't it? Fearing God speaks of my attitude. Giving glory to God speaks of my actions. Fearing God has to do what we, with what we think. Giving glory to God has to do with what we do. Fearing God deals with that inner commitment to make God the center of my life. Giving glory to God is translating that inner commitment to an outward expression. So how do we give glory to God? We live for God. We live in a way that glorifies God. But again, we live in a society that we want to live in a way that glorifies me, myself, and I. And in case you didn't notice, I'll post it on social media. Give glory to God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All to the glory of God. So again, your prayer time in the morning. Lord, how can I best glorify you today? What does that look like today? And not just how can I glorify you out there in the community, which is important. How can I glorify you here in my home, in my closest relationships, with my children, with my spouse, with my colleagues? How can I glorify you in those relationships? It starts with fearing God. But if I fear God, if I have awe and respect for God, it's going to change how I live and what I do. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you are bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Is this talking about healthful living? Yes. Is it only talking about healthful living? No. And what you do, and how you live, and how you carry yourself. Glorify God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you how much? completely. Who is sanctifying me? The God of peace himself. As I fear him, as I awe and respect him, as I make myself available to him, he promises to sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, the Lord wants to help me overcome my bad habits. That's good news. Not just for me, but for my wife. God's doing it, but I have to be coordinated with that effort. I have to allow him to come in and do the work. I have to submit myself to him. Not in a breath prayers I run out the door, but in spending time. I mean, a good relationship is signified by time spent. It's about that simple. Are you investing in things that are edifying and uplifting that focus your mind heavenward? Matthew 1, 21, and he shall bring forth the son. I know it's not Christmas. And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people in their sins from their sins. I've said it before, your kid's stuck on the ant pile getting stung and bit up by all kinds of ants. I say, don't worry, son, you're not going to die. You're getting bit up by all kinds of simple habits and everything else is causing you grief and pain in your life. And God says, don't worry, I died for you. So just never mind. No, he wants to save me from those sins that weigh so heavily upon me and you and cause pain and heartache. It's called sanctification. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 57. And again, how is the victory obtained? In Jesus. So what's the need of our world today? Number one, the gospel. Number two, a sense of purpose. Number three, authority. And number four, victory. Do you need victory in your life? We better keep going to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to Him for the hour of His judgment is come. I read this chapter today. I'm going through my Bible reading program. Psalm 94. 
And if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to Psalm 94. I'm going to be skipping around to the parts that I have marked up, which might drive you a little bit crazy. I'll try and keep you with me. Psalm chapter 94, and beginning in verse 1, says, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs. And then he says later, shine forth. In verse 2, he says, rise up. He says, judge. Verse 3, he says, how long will the wicked triumph? Middle of verse 4, all the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. They break in pieces your people. Verse 6, they slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Verse 7, yet they say, the Lord does not see. Essentially, there is no God. Verse 9, he who planted the ear, shall he not hear? And he who formed the eye, shall he not see? Verse 14, for the Lord will not cast off his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. Verse 15, but judgment will return. Verse 16, who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help. Do you need help today? My soul soon have settled in silence. Verse 18, if I say my foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. Verse 19, the multitude of my anxieties. Anybody anxious today? Within me, your comforts delight my soul. Verse 20 talks about the throne of iniquity. Verse 21, they gather together against the life of the righteous and condemn innocent blood. Verse 22, but the Lord has been my defense and my God, the rock of my refuge. He has brought on them their own iniquity. And the last phrase of the Psalms says, the Lord our God shall cut them off. Friends, this whole chapter is about the idea that God is our judge. And judgment is not something to be afraid of. If you're a friend of Jesus, judgment is something you desire and want and long for. Because it's in judgment that all the wrongs will be made right. It's in judgment that righteousness will triumph over evil. The powers of hell will be defeated. Injustice will not have the last word. Well, this world is so unfair. It is so unfair. But God will be your judge and my judge. I'm tired of watching, honestly, all the garbage this world has to offer, aren't you? I'm tired of watching my own son slowly decline and lose function. I'm tired of hearing of mothers in this congregation having stillbirths. I'm tired of cancer, of chemotherapy, of dementia, of lacrosse and cephalitis taking eight-year-old girls. I'm tired of fires and hurricanes, of wars, of rioting, of looting, of unfairness or injustice. But the beautiful part about judgment is that God will have the last word. The hour of his judgment is come. And the good news is the judgment will pass in favor of God's people. Because we're worthy? No, because he's worthy. And we've accepted him as our Lord and as our Savior. The moment is coming when the great controversy will be finally settled once and for all. Where God will show that he is both merciful and just. Where he is both loving and righteous. Where he's both compassionate and fair. The judgment reveals that God has done everything in his power that he possibly can to save every lost human being on the planet. And the judgment speaks that he will one day set all the wrongs right once and for all. Friends, that is good news. Again, in a society that's calling for justice, America, the world is watching. Time to demand justice now. But friends, I'm afraid they're asking for something that America cannot deliver. They're asking for something that the world cannot deliver. Only Jesus can bring true and ultimate justice to this sin-ravaged planet. Yes, you can make some reforms and some tweaks. I'm not saying those are bad things. But ultimately, justice will never be served 
until Jesus comes. And so that's number five on our list. What the world needs today, they need the gospel, they need purpose, they need authority, they need victory, and they need justice. Identity is the next one. For the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him. That's key in the three angels' messages, worship. And who are we worshiping? Him that made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. This is a clarion call to worship the creator. And what is the basis for our worship? Revelation 4.11, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, period. In the 4th century B.C., Aristotle was making his argument that the earth always existed, and he was trying to use physics or science, we could say, to back up his claims. Augustine, in the 4th and 5th century, doubted Genesis 1-3 to as literal. They thought it was just allegorical or symbolic, and so he laid the groundwork for this idea of theistic evolution. Or the idea that God guided evolution over millions of years. It was Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century that carried his thoughts a bit further. He spoke of the old law, including the Sabbath, as merely a shadow that was overtaken by its reality in Jesus Christ. So to keep the seventh-day Sabbath would be no better than slaying a lamb in the Christian age. And so again, the, the groundwork is laid. This big bulwark, if you will of the Sabbath, of holding on to who we are, our identity as being created and fashioned and formed by a creator God is now stripped away. Bible and truth are marginalized and spiritualized except new theories. Then Charles Darwin published his first draft of Origin of the Species, 1842. His first essay was published in 1844. By 1859, Darwin's thoughts had been fully developed when it was first published, The Origin of the Species. One prominent writer says this, one of history's most influential and talked about scientific paper. It introduces the process of natural selection, a theory that became the backbone of modern biology, an idea further developed into not just science, but philosophy and the idea of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engel, bringing about evolution and communism simultaneously. And now at this time in Earth's history, the scientific world and even the religious world have accepted Darwinian evolution and are again leaning closer and closer to communistic ideas. Would this have happened had we maintained the Sabbath? The fact that God created and formed and fashioned us. Day one, he says, let there be light. Day two, he created the firmament. Day three, dry land. Day four, lights in the firmament. Day five, fills the sea and the air. Day six, he fills the earth and he also makes man in his own image in a very personal way. And then day seven, God sanctified and blessed a day as a memorial of his work as creator. Worship him that made the heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. God is calling people back to their true identity. Creation speaks of our value in God's sight, our worth in him. I mean, think about the alternative. You're just some speck of cosmic dust here by chance, here by evolution. You're some genetic accident. You're just a little higher than the apes. And when you die, you'll go back to the dirt and worms will eat your body. That's it. Game over. What does that do to your sense of purpose? What does that do to your sense of identity? When the opposite is that a loving creator formed and fashioned us with a plan and purpose in mind. He loves you, he cares for you, and he's coming back to get you. That's a God that's worthy of our worship. And the Sabbath is so beautiful because once a week we rest, not in my achievements, but in his achievements. It's rest, not works. It's grace, not legalism. It's assurance, not condemnation. It's depending on him, not ourselves. And so each Sabbath we rejoice and bask in his love and praise him for the salvation that can only be found in Christ. Yes, the Sabbath is my identity as a child of the King. And lastly, what the world needs today is the truth. 
Moving on to the second angel, and another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. That great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. Wine represents false doctrine, and Babylon symbolizes a system of religious confusion. And so again, here is the result of not following the first angel. Babylon at its core represents opposition to God. Babylon represents self-centered arrogance and human pride. What did King Nebuchadnezzar say? Is this not great Babylon that I have built? That's Babylon. And here we have corporate or worldwide opposition to God and the first angel's message. And so here in the second angel is this message that this false system has fallen. That the wrath of God, not God's anger, but his judgments, he's done everything to redeem you. But if you reject him, there's no other way you can be saved. And so it's his warning. This is the time to do something. And then the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark on his forehead or on his hand. Let me go back. What's the mark of the beast? At the heart is placing human above the divine. Man's word over God's word. Man's Sabbath over God's Sabbath. About giving glory to man instead of giving glory to God. And what's he trying to steer us away from? Anyone who receives the mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation, and shall be tormented with a fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. Friends, sin cannot exist in the presence of a holy God. And so there is something that needs to take place, and it's free. It's available. It's acceptable, or accessible, I should say, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Nobody is blocked from what God is longing to give humanity. But there will be those, because he values freedom of choice, there will be those that say, I don't want it, I'm not interested, leave me alone. Yes, the warning against worshiping the beast is the most urgent given in the book of Revelation. Because God's angry? No, because God is a God of love. He doesn't want any to perish. And then... Verse 12, here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. I don't know if you've heard it. I've heard people say, three angels message, that's kind of antiquated. You know how long we've been preaching that tired message? Pastor, are you going to give us something new? Itching ears. But folks, I think it's the message for our time. Given to us from the throne of heaven. Yet there are some that think that the Adventist church needs to be reinvented. So let me just ask you this. In these last days, I didn't put quotes up of all of them. I I have them. I could. But in these last days, where things are tumultuous, where people are rioting, where people are angry and upset, burning down businesses, I mean, you name it, you turn on the news. What message to you is more relevant? Let's bend at the knees as we inhale. (sighs) Let's center ourselves. What do we need? We need more centering groups. We need to have more mystical practices. We need to do more walks in the dark. Are you kidding me? What is more relevant for our time than the three angels' messages? We don't need Ricky prayers or drumming or repeating a word until our brain is empty so the devil can fill it with whatever he wants. Now I need to take a deep breath. Have mercy. God's three angels are the precious message for our time. Volume 9 of the Testimonies says, They have been given a work of the most solemn import, the proclamation of the first, second, and third angels' message. There's no other work of so great importance. They are to allow nothing else to absorb their attention. The most solemn truths ever entrusted to mortals. Think about that. Is God real? Is God in heaven? Is God big? Is God filled with glory and awe? Is God all-powerful? Can God do anything? 
I mean, who do you know that is more influential, more powerful than the God of the universe? And he says to his prophet, the most solemn truths ever entrusted to mortals have been given to us to proclaim to the world. The proclamation of these truths is to be our work. There's other places. I didn't put it in here. The Salvation Army, they do a good work. They're great. It's great what they do, and we should be supportive of them. But she says at the end of the day, ultimately, that's not our work. Now, wait, are you a pastor? You're saying we shouldn't help people in need? I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that the most important job that God has given the Seventh-day Adventist Church is to proclaim this message. Because it's not my job to feed the hungry and to find a place for the homeless and all the rest just so they can burn in hell. And some people say, oh, we shouldn't have hooks in the waters. We need to have it. No strings attached. Are you kidding me? That's what the Christian is all about. It's always a string attached. So you're saying if they don't accept and be baptized, you're not going to give them a bowl of soup? That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying make the invitation. Offer them Bible studies. Allow them the opportunity to say, yeah, I would like to do that. I've been wondering. I've been waiting for somebody to ask me. Now somebody's going to say, no, I'm not interested. Leave me alone. Okay, would you like more soup? Glorify God. But at the heart and soul of what we are called to do, we don't need another denomination. We need an end-time message to be proclaimed. And so as an Adventist church, I appeal to you and to me. We don't need to reform. We don't need to reinvent. We need to follow what God has given to us. The proclamation of truths is to be our work. The world is to be warned, and God's people are to be true to the trust committed to them. Do you want to be true to that trust? By God's grace, I do The need of the world today is this everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ. Its purpose is given as we are to take this gospel of the world. The world needs authority, submitting to the higher authority as we fear God. It needs victory in Jesus. When we give glory to Him and we claim His power to overcome sin in our lives, it needs justice. The hour of His judgment has come. God will make all things right. He will have the last word. It needs identity as we recognize that we are created in the image of God, and it needs the truth that will help them and us in overcoming every wind of doctrine that's blowing today so that when Jesus comes, we can say, lo, here is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us. Dear Heavenly Father, we believe that you are coming soon and we believe that you raised up this denomination to share. We're the only group sharing this three angels message, the most relevant message that there could be for these last times because you gave it to us. Lord, may we be faithful to that charge to that weighty gift that you have given to this church to share with the world that desperately needs to know everything encapsulated in the verses that we've read, that Jesus is coming again. Lord, give us the patience of the saints. May we follow you faithfully. May you be our guide. May you be our power. May you be our strength in all we do. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.